Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. I start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you um, just for this great assurance that we have as we consider who Christ is, Lord, and our identity being found in Him. Lord, there is a confidence and a certainty that You have invited us to enjoy as we walk by faith in the truth of who You are and who we are in Christ. So we just ask that You would have Your way now in our hearts as we consider these sweet truths. Lord, that our faith will be strengthened, that You will be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You have a seat. All right, so this is why I actually dressed up. Um, <clears throat> yeah, as Mark was saying, our, our students have, for the most part, left. We have a number that have stayed on to help with our summer camp. And yeah, so we have, I feel like we've had quite a few uh, people join the church recently and just start to attend and you hear about his hill a lot and it's like what is this his hill that's talked about uh, and so during the the school year we're a gap year program but then during the summertime we run a summer camp for ages 8 to 18 years old and so we're transitioning now to the summer uh, and on Monday we start our staff training and so we have uh, some new people that were not here for Bible school that have joined us this weekend uh, and then others that have remained on and those here for camp, they're just volunteering. And so it's, it's a sacrifice as they volunteer in the Texas heat. Uh, but it's, it's such a joy to see. And whenever we wrap up Bible school, uh, it, it's always on our hearts as a staff, just that reality of the transition from living in community like they, they have in the, a school like his own, the gap year program, they're just surrounded by believers who are desiring to know Jesus and to grow in who Christ is. And, and then the transition out of that community uh, can be difficult. It can feel isolating at times. It can be a challenge. And 
that the calling of the Lord for the Christian is that as we walk with him, we would continue to grow in the knowledge and understanding of who Christ is, what he's done at the cross, at his resurrection, and what it means that we're in Christ, what it means that our identity is in him. In Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read this, verse 17 to 20, he says, this is Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church. He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So he's praying they would understand who Christ is. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What specifically does he want them to see? He says, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And our students have been growing in the knowledge of who Christ is. The Christian life for each of us, it's a... It's a walking with the Lord and growing and understanding of who he is. And our prayer is that we would grow in this understanding that as he says here in Ephesians, at the revelation and knowledge of Christ, that we would know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints, that we would know who he is. And As one grows in knowing Christ, knowing his death, his resurrection, and what it means that we are identified in him, the challenge comes when we're faced with the natural consequences of growth. And you have a tree that's in the ground and its roots are going deep but as the tree is growing up above the ground the more it grows the more it is exposed to the elements the higher the tree is the greater the wind seems to have an effect on the tree really tall trees i grew up in south carolina and they have lots of pine trees there and you can just see those pine trees swaying so much in the wind as they reach as high as they can and and we recognize that as the tree grows, it's, it's exposed to the elements in a greater way than when it's really low to the ground. And so before it grows up, it has to grow deep. And as, as I think about our students transitioning, and as I think about our lives as believers, and we're wanting to grow into maturity in Christ, But we recognize that as we grow, it also increases the reality of our exposure to how much we just don't fit with the world. That this is not our home. And the challenges that come when we seek to live a godly life in a godless world. And this is all rooted in what Christ himself has accomplished in his death and his resurrection. That this is where the roots are going deep. So that as the growth takes place, the roots are there to to hold us fast in what is true. And Paul speaks of this in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. He says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And then verse 7, Having been firmly rooted. 
and now being built up. First, he says, you're firmly rooted in Christ and his accomplished work, and now you're being built up in him, and you're being established in your faith, just as you were instructed. And this is why we get together each week. One of the reasons why we gather as a, as a body of believers so that we can come together and we can be reminded through the preaching of the word, through conversations that we have with each other about who Christ is. These are reminders. Who is Christ? What does it mean that I am in Christ? And then we leave from here and go into the world for the sake of, as, we've, as we're growing in our knowledge and understanding of who he is, we're faced with the realities and the challenges that come, and we consider and reflect on what we're hearing in our own study of the word, in our assembling together, we're considering the roots that have been established. And so this, this morning, this, all I want to do is just again consider just some of the roots of what it means that we're in Christ. And I believe that's what Peter is wanting to, to speak to as he begins this letter in 1 Peter that he's wanting to encourage Christians when they're just facing the normal challenges of living a life that's surrendered to Jesus. They're facing the challenges of being misunderstood by the world around them. They're facing the challenge of being maligned and hated for doing what is right. And Peter's going to write in here, let's say, what good is it if you suffer for doing what is evil? But if you suffer for doing what is good, you are blessed. And I'm like, wait, what? But that's his point. He says, this is going to be normal for the Christian that as we grow, we have greater exposure to the challenges and the ways in which we, we face the world and the sin in it and the sin in our own lives. And so the believers here, they're being persecuted. They're facing persecution from outside of the church. Uh, it's written around early 60 AD, and so the, the church, Christ followers, are becoming more well-known, but not more well-liked. And so as the church is growing and spreading and having a greater influence on the culture, Rome doesn't like that very much, and so persecution continues to increase. And he's writing to believers that are in modern-day Turkey in Asia Minor, and throughout this letter, there's going to be several times that Paul incur- or not Paul, Peter encourages them, don't be surprised at your suffering. Don't be surprised that as if some strange thing is happening to you. He says this is, this is to be expected, the fact that you're being mistreated and disliked and misunderstood. And so how is it that Paul seeks to encourage them in the face of that mistreatment, that challenge? He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as they're facing hardship, he begins his letter with, praise God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins the letter with exalting who God is, lifting up who God is. 
And he says, in the face of what you're, what you're walking through, you have every reason to celebrate and to give thanks. And he's going to unpack, how is that so? How is it that they have reason to give thanks? But it just strikes me that whatever the situation is that, that I'm walking through, it really needs to be viewed in the context of the completed work of Christ. He says, as you consider the situation that you're walking through, you should view it in light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what he has caused for you in light of that. Consider your current circumstances in light of Christ's accomplished work. And it's so easy to get caught up in the immediate things that I'm wrestling through in my own heart and and Peter here is, you know, he's, he's in harmony with Job in that whatever the challenge is that they're facing, they can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and he takes away. And so he tells them, he starts off, praise God, blessed be God. And he mentions that God has done something according to his great mercy. And this which he has accomplished is based on his own character of being merciful. And what is it that he's done? So these things are not deserved by us, but they're in accordance with his mercy. He said initially, by his mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, but one that's living. And God has orchestrated salvation to be such that the way it plays out is that when we're born again, brought into newness of life in Christ, we have every reason to be filled with hope, to be rejoicing, to be optimistic. Because what we've been brought into in our new birth is not a life that's primarily just to be miserable, but rather one that's filled with confidence based on what he's done. What is it that he's done? Jesus has been raised. We have new life in him. We ourselves are raised with Christ. This past week at his hill, the last week of school, we always open up give the students opportunity to be baptized if they have not yet been. And so we had eight students that we got to baptize on Wednesday. And it's easily becoming my favorite day of the year, getting to, to see these brothers and sisters uh, step forward in, in a desire to proclaim the miracle of new life that they've been given in Christ. And... It's interesting that, you know, when we talk about baptism, and, and I was sharing this on Wednesday, you know, that baptism is not primarily for the purpose of proclaiming our forgiveness of sins. It's not primarily for saying we have been crucified with Christ. Because if that's all that baptism is, and it's, it's a really uh, startling and frustrating experience. Because in the, in the act of baptism, because we're just wanting to represent the inward reality of what Christ has done in our lives, and if we're just celebrating forgiveness, being crucified with Christ, our sin is put in the grave, 
then we put that person in the water and we just stay there a long time because that's what's happened. We're celebrating forgiveness that we've been crucified with Christ. And the longer you leave the person down in the water, the less satisfied they become. Right? They're, it's fascinating how this works. It's like we're celebrating here. Um, and no, no. And the people that are watching, they're not celebrating if you hold somebody under the water. No. They celebrate when you bring them out of the water. Because the most precious part, if I can say it, the most precious part of the baptism isn't primarily the forgiveness of sins being crucified with Christ, but that is now it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That you bring them out of the water, and that's when people are rejoicing. They're celebrating, they're clapping. Because their old life has been crucified and they've been brought to newness of life. This is the miracle. That we're not brought to a dead hope that Christ is still in the grave. It's not just about our forgiveness, but it's that God has imparted to us new life. We've been resurrected in Christ. He is our life. And so Peter says here in the face of the the suffering that they're walking through, says we've been He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. One in which we've been raised up with Christ. No longer slaves to sin. This is what God, as He has designed salvation to be played out the way that it has, He's caused us to be born again to a hope that's alive. This is how it works. We put our faith in Christ. We're born again. And because of his work, we have cause to rejoice. We have a living hope, not a dead one. We can have the confidence that there's something new in me that wasn't there before when I placed my faith in Christ. And that something is a someone... Christ himself. And there's a second thing he mentions here. He says he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. But he's also, in verse 4, caused us to be born again to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and is reserved in heaven for you. And I'm just going to hold off a minute on talking about what this inheritance is, but seeing those adjectives there afterwards, he describes the inheritance as that which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. What things do you own that you could use those adjectives to describe? Imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away. What items do you have that you could use that you could describe with those words? This thing is never going to fade away. I recently uh, took the plunge and I bought a pellet grill. Sorry for those of you that are adamant grillers. I need all the help I can get, so I got a pellet grill. And, uh, <clears throat> and it's fascinating to me how when I, whenever you get something new, you take really good care of it at first. And no matter how much, so every time I've used it so far, I'm diligent to try to clean it and make sure it's you know, no rust and all that stuff. But I tell you, eventually that thing's going to get rusty and it's going to fall apart. 
It's just, it's just a fact of life. Like, it's going to perish. Uh, I had to get it because my last grill, guess what happened to it? It, it perished. Uh, and so there's, there's this newness that needs to take place. We buy a new car, same thing. I remember the first car that I ever bought. And I was in high school. And my dad was like, if you want a car, you get to spend the money on it. So I was like, well, I'm going to take good care of this thing then. And I washed it every weekend for a little bit. And then I did not wash it every weekend anymore. Uh, because eventually I, the diligence wore off. But I also realized, I mean, I can wash it all day long. But it's not going to actually make the paint necessarily last longer. Uh, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to fade away. Our relationships... What relationships do you have that are undefiled? They don't exist. Because I'm part of it. You know? And so it, no matter what, no matter what, you know, that whatever items that we have, we can invest in property, we can invest in material things, we can invest in accomplishments. Our money is perishable. Our titles are going to fade. We'll be forgotten. This is really depressing. Um, and, and this is how he describes our inheritance. Is that which is imperishable. It is undefiled. It won't fade away. And these believers are faced with the reality of people robbing them of their things, displacing them from their homes. And they're discouraged. And he encouraged them with, there's something waiting for you that cannot be taken from you. And so your hope is not rooted in what you have presently on earth, but it's rooted in what God has caused you to be born into. As you're born again in Christ, you have cause to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, won't fade away. And when he says that it's undefiled, that means that you and I, we can't defile that either. He goes on and he says that it's reserved in heaven for you. Who is reserving it? I'm not. And if I'm not the one reserving it, it means I'm not the one that's able to get rid of it either. God is reserving it. He says, it's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. And so as we, as, as I'm prone to think, you know, to give myself too much credit of how my actions can impact eternity, uh, the Lord reminds me, again, John, you are not the one in whom you're putting your confidence for what you will receive. But rather, that which you will receive is a gift to you by the work of Christ that we're identified with him, and it's imperishable. And so as these believers are faced with the challenges, as we face challenges, and we've can maybe be discouraged with how quickly things seem to fade away, he reminds us that this inheritance won't be defiled. 
God is reserving it for us. What is the inheritance that he's speaking of here? And, you know, one of the things that I've thought about over the years as I've had kids uh, is why in the world did God give us imaginations? Because it just kind of confuses me about what's the value in our ability to be able to perceive things that simply are not real. And it's like, why is it that when, when a guy smiles at a girl, the girl immediately starts thinking about weddings? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> but the imagination starts running, right? And why does a little boy see a stick on the ground and he starts fighting dragons? It just happens. Uh, because in our imaginations, we begin to go to a place that simply isn't real. Why does God put that ability inside of humanity? It's fascinating. Why does he equip us with the ability to even if we, if we indulge in our imagination, we can get to the point where it almost seems like we have physical sensations to something that we're thinking about in our minds, and our imagination, and we have a sensation that is in contradiction to the reality that we're presently in. How can we be so immersed in a fake experience? And I think this is one of the reasons why things like video games have taken off so much, because it just brings the imagination a little closer to feeling like it's reality. Because God's given us this imagination. And I believe one of the the primary reasons why he's given us the ability to consider and think of things that we could never truly experience in reality is because we can never fully wrap our minds around what this inheritance is and what it will be like to be with him face to face. All we can do is even just start to imagine it. But we have so, we have nothing that's going to compare to the preciousness and the beauty and the awe that we will experience when we are with Christ. So we think about this inheritance. What is this inheritance? And I just start with it's really to a large degree, indescribable, I think. We can only imagine what it's going to be like. You see how it's described in Scripture. Just some verses here on this. And when Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross, in John 17, he says to the Father, The glory which you've given me, I have given to them, my disciples, that they may be one just as we are one. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying that his disciples would get to behold his glory, that they would get to share in this. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he's about to leave them, and he anticipates he's never going to see them again because he's going to be arrested when he gets to Jerusalem and then taken to Rome. And he tells them as he's departing from these elders whom he loves, he says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
Paul testifies again in Acts 26 when he's recounting his conversion on the road to Damascus. God's call on his life. And he says in verse 18, to open their eyes, this is Jesus speaking, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Two things Jesus is anticipating for the believer to experience. Forgiveness of sins and an inheritance. We don't talk about the inheritance very much. We talk about the forgiveness a lot. And I think to some degree it's because the forgiveness is a little more tangible to us. We understand what it means to wrong somebody and to be forgiven. But this inheritance, we can only imagine what this is actually going to be like. But he keeps bringing it up. Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15, for this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And then even in 1 Peter, he begins this letter with speaking about this inheritance and he ends it speaking about an inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 5. He's wanting to encourage them to persevere. And this is what he speaks of in his encouragement for them to persevere. In verse 4 he says, 1 Peter 5, 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. That exaltation, I believe, is speaking of this receiving of an unfading crown of glory. He describes it as unfading, similar to what he says in chapter 1 about this inheritance as imperishable, undefiled, it won't fade away. And he calls it a crown of glory. And I believe this is what this inheritance is. Scripture talks about we get to share in the glory of Christ, we receive a crown of glory. And then we ask the question, well, how do you describe, like, what is that? How do you describe sharing in the glory of Christ and receiving a crown of glory? I have no idea. It's totally beyond my comprehension of how vastly amazing this is going to be. But I know that this is to be a source and an opportunity of encouragement for us as the tree continues to grow up and is more exposed to the challenges that come about in life. He wants to encourage us to consider the roots that hold the tree fast in place. And he says, in Christ you are promised this inheritance, which we can only imagine about. We can only consider in our thoughts of how wonderful it will be. But he says it's going to be glorious. The inheritance back in chapter 1 is provided on the basis of Christ. It's provided on the basis of his completed work. This inheritance is in no way based on my own work. Praise God. 
It's totally accomplished and reserved because of Christ. It's glorious. Christ is at the center of it. Ultimately, I think just that at the root of the core of what this inheritance is, is simply being with Jesus. Simply being with Christ will be more than enough. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, and he says, to depart and to be with Christ, he says, is much better. But to stay on with you is more necessary. And Paul considers this inheritance, this departing and being with Christ, as better. It's okay for it to be something that we anticipate and long for and see as it's better to be there than it is to be here. That's what Paul says. But one is more necessary at the moment than the other one is. And so we trust him to have us where it is most necessary. In verse 5, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that we are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Protected by the power of God. And this protection is placed on us in the moment of our salvation. In faith, we're born again. And and from that point onward, this inheritance that's ours in Christ, we're protected for it. It's protected by God. This living hope that we have in Christ is protected by the power of God. We cannot overpower the Lord and jeopardize our inheritance and our living hope. But rather, our inheritance and our living hope are rooted in Jesus himself and what he's done. This is a promise of eternal security. We can't lose it. Nowhere does he say, does he plant any seeds of doubt of, this is yours, unless down the road you reject it. He says, no, you've been born again, so the fact that it is yours is reserved in heaven for you and is protected by the power of God. Which means that, as he said, it can't be damaged, it can't be defiled, it can't be stolen. And so if we suffer for righteousness' sake, he says, we're blessed. He says, if government oppresses you, recognize that you have something reserved for you that the government cannot attack, they can't belittle, they can't defile it, so you have confidence. If a master or an employer treats you unfairly, you will be treated rightly in the future. Maybe not presently, but in the future, this is promised to you. This is this certainty that we have in Christ's completed work. Wives, if your husbands are disobedient to the word, not leading spiritually, it's discouraging to see. You're at a loss as to how to how to encourage and train up your children when the husband is not leading. And Peter speaks to this in this letter, and he tells him, Consider this. Inheritance that is yours. The living hope that you have in Christ. 
Husbands, if your wife is hard to live with, he says, continue to live with her in an understanding way. This is what Peter says in this letter. Some of the things that, that these people, as they heard, uh, as they were walking through their Christian life, challenges that they faced, and he says, as you are wrestling through how to respond to governments and how to respond to employers and how to respond to spouses, you need to stop and consider in chapter 3, in chapter 2, he says, you need to stop and consider Christ. He says in verse 23, while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself. Over and over and over again. Jesus was entrusting himself to the Father. And the Christian has this calling that whether it's in the context of governments or in the context of employers, or in the context of relationships, spouses, children, all the challenges that we face, he says, in those difficulties, you entrust yourself to the Father. You're entrusting yourself to Christ, recognizing what he has already accomplished and purposed for you. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope. And so your employer does not treat you fairly compared to the other employees. This is not my situation. And, and you recognize that you can trust the Lord because your confidence, your hope is not rooted in how you're treated in the workplace. Your hope is rooted in what Christ has accomplished for you in his death and his resurrection. Living hope presently future hope and an inheritance, seeing Christ face to face. Yes, to leave and be with Christ would certainly be better, but it's certainly not necessary. Because what our calling is presently is to be here so that Christ would be magnified and he would be seen, he would be known. Why, in verse 6, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, rejoicing about this inheritance, what God has caused us to be born again into. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. And I don't like that verse very much because it has that phrase in there, if necessary, you are distressed by various trials. Who gets to determine if a trial is necessary? Do I get a vote? No, we don't. Uh, Obviously, it's not the devil who determines if a trial is necessary. It's God himself. God determines in this situation, in this moment, at this time, here's this trial. Not for the purpose of destroying faith, but rather to purify faith. James chapter 1 speaks of this. It's the same idea here in 1 Peter You've been distressed by various trials. How come, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
These trials are necessary for the proof of our faith. Warren Wiersbe, his commentary writes, and he says, No goldsmith would deliberately waste the precious metal. He would put it into the smelting furnace long enough to remove the cheap impurities, and then he would pour it out and make from it a beautiful article of value. And the trial is for the sake of exposing the impurities where we maybe think that we're trusting the Lord, but in reality we know, we find out through the trial, I was not actually trusting the Lord with that. A child gets sick, and you think, yeah, I trust God for our health, until there's true sickness, serious sickness. And then the reality of our faith is tested. And God brings us to a place to say, I trust you. I truly trust you. So this isn't the proof of our faith like I'm proving to you that I have faith. But it's a proof of faith in a sense of the Lord is wanting our faith to be purified. As gold is refined and the impurities are taken off, so also the trials come along and the Lord uses those trials to to bring to light our weak faith so that in our weakness we're brought to the Lord Jesus and we see his strength, that his power is perfected in our weakness. And so as we behold Jesus more clearly for who he is, what he's done, our faith is strengthened. Why does that need to happen? He says at the end of verse 7, so that the proof of our faith could be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is concerned about how Jesus is revealed in the life of the Christian, and when Christ returns, the purity of faith is a testament to the purity of the one in whom the faith is in. We're increasingly convinced that our faith in Christ is well-placed because we're seeing more and more clearly of who he is. The roots are going deeper. Our faith is more certain. We're confident that Christ is worthy of our faith. And so this is why these trials are necessary. So that ultimately Christ would be revealed and displayed in our lives. He says later in in 1 Peter... It's the the passage where he says that they ought to be ready to give a reason for the defense of the hope that is in them. And it's in the context of these people that are being mocked and ridiculed by unbelievers in Asia Minor. And these unbelievers are saying, why won't you participate in our drinking parties? Why won't you participate in our immoral activities? And they revile the Christians. And yet the Christians have hope and joy in the midst of that. Rejection. And Peter is telling them, you need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. He's not talking about apologetics here, though it could be used in that sense. But he's mainly talking about explaining why you're joyful in suffering. And he says, you're, you're joyful in suffering because you've been brought into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You are joyful in suffering because of the certainty of what Christ has purchased for you and that is undefiled and imperishable and is reserved in heaven for you. And so you can have hope in your suffering 
And as you suffer and the world is confused by what they see and the way that you suffer, then we give opportunity to testify about who Jesus is. And this is the reason for, one of the reasons for these trials is that Christ himself would be magnified. And the, the way that I've most appreciated seeing this expressed and explained or illustrated, the psalmist talks about, oh, magnify the Lord with me. What does it mean to magnify something? It means to make it bigger. And we have two main means of magnification that we use. The scientists can use a telescope, not a telescope, a microscope. And they take this little clear disc that looks like it has nothing on it, and you stick it under the microscope, and there's all these little weird things moving around on there. And you're like, wow, things that were so tiny and invisible to the naked eye, now they're blown up and they look huge. That's fascinating. But then the other way that we magnify something is with a telescope, and we point it off at a distant star, at a moon, and we look in there, and suddenly this thing that looked really small before suddenly appears to be a lot bigger than it was. But the reality is, it's still not even close to how big it truly is. Even through the telescope, we're getting just a glimpse of the greatness of its size. And when we're called to magnify the Lord in, this, in our suffering through the trials, a proof of our faith so that Christ is worshipped, his glory is revealed at the revelation of Christ, we're magnifying Jesus in the way that we suffer. He says that kind of magnification isn't the, the microscope kind where we're trying to pretend like Jesus is a lot bigger than he really is. But rather it's a telescope kind of magnification where we're taking one who maybe seems small, but through the hardships of life, God is slowly helping us to see how big he really is. And glory will be the moment when we get to see him face to face. And we can only imagine what that will be like, how glorious, how great he truly is. And this is why Paul repeatedly says, the, the present circumstances are just momentary and light. They're nothing to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed to us in Christ. And so we anticipate that. And so just to have a few words here of, of reminders, of encouragement, nothing new, but just a reminder of what we can be confident of in our being born again brought to salvation in Christ, what he's caused us to be born into, a living hope that as we go about our day, we can be filled with hope because of the new life that we have in Christ. We can walk by faith knowing that we have died and now we are raised up with him. And he's caused us to be born again to an inheritance that's imperishable. It's undefiled. Nobody else can take it from you. You can't take it from you. You can't rob yourself of it. Because it's protected by the power of God. Praise God. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for these things, uh, again, that are fully ours in Christ, but 
not on any account of what we have done. But this is your work. So I pray that our hearts would just say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You've given us more than we can comprehend in Christ. And so I pray that we would simply be willing to entrust ourselves to you this day, going into a new week, that we'd be reminded again of your sufficiency, or that we have been given all that we need in Christ. So may we walk by faith and trust you as our faith is tested, purified, for your name's sake. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.